Imagine three million people in your backyard. Three million. That's exactly what happened to some of these great kings of Israel. I mean, you don't even like two or three people in your backyard, right? Can you imagine three million people? Well, three million people are on their way from Kadesh Barnea to the Promised Land. All three million have left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They've spent their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and now they're marching toward Canaan. We see this in the news every night, Jordan, Syria, Jerusalem. That's the Middle East. That's the territory that they were in. And so when they came to different communities that were already deeply entrenched, they would write a letter and they would ask the king for permission to pass through their land. And so one of the great kings of the Amorites was a guy by the name of Sihon. And so they send the form letter to Sihon by a courier and they say, Sihon, we won't drink your water. We won't trample your vineyards. We won't lick up your grass. If anything happens, we'll pay for it with our own silver. All we want to do is pass through your land. May we pass through your backyard. Sihon says, denied. So God says, go to war. And they go to war and wipe them out. Pretty cool, right? If you got any neighbors you don't like, go to war and wipe them out, okay? The next mile marker, let's say that's mile marker one, and now we're at mile marker 30, headed toward maybe mile marker 100. The next mile marker is a king named Og. Say Og. That's a great name. Og was the king of Basham. Same form letter goes to Og. Dear Og. I don't know what it didn't say dear, but Mr. Og, King Og. All we want to do is pass through your land. We won't drink your water. We won't lick up your grass. We won't trample your vineyards. All we want to do, can we have permission? Denied. They go to war. They wipe out Og, okay? Well, now, mile marker 55 or 56, they're coming to the Moabites. And the Moabites are everywhere, and they're entrenched. But the Moabite king, his name is Balak. Say Balak. Say Balak. It's a great name, Balak. The king of the Moabites is Balak, and he gets word about what happened to Sihon, and he gets word what happened to Og. And so he decides that he's going to pay for a sorcerer to come, and the sorcerer will come and pronounce a curse and if you can get the sorcerer to come, you ought to look at me like I'm crazy. This is in the Bible. Stop looking at me like that. This is in the scriptures. Read your Bible. Okay. So, so he, he, he searches the land for the greatest sorcerer, and it's a man by the name of Balaam. Say Balaam. So Balaam is the sorcerer. You got to keep these two names straight. And Balak is the king. So Balak searches the land, and he sends a bunch of princes. And these princes go and they find Balaam and they say to Balaam, come and pronounce a curse on these, these three million people, the Israelites. All you got to do is come pronounce a curse. We know you've got witchcraft. We know you've got sorcery. We know you've got the power of divination. All we need you to do is pronounce a curse because they're going to lick up everything in our area. and We're going to be in real trouble. And so Balaam then He's kind of this mercenary guy, and he begins to ask questions to different deities, and he asks God if he should go, and God said no. And so he tells the men he can't go. Well, they go back to Balak, and Balak said, what am I? What's up with this? Send more money. 
Send more men. Everybody has a price. Everybody can be bought. And so sure enough, he goes back to Balaam, raises the ante, offers more silver, offers more gold. And sure enough, Balaam's going to go. And Balaam is on his way right now with Balak, where we're going to join the story, and he's going to pronounce a curse, supposedly, over the Israelites. Here's the story, Numbers chapter 22. When Balak heard, now Balak is the king, when Balak heard that Balaam, Balaam is the sorcerer. You got those two names right? You got to get these two names right or you're in trouble. Balak is the who? And Balaam is the? He's a sorcerer. So when Balak the king heard that Balaam the sorcerer was coming to meet him, was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town at the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. And Balak the king says to the sorcerer, did I not send you an urgent message, summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my what? My mouth. Then Balaam went with Balak to this territory, okay? Verse 40. Balak then, the king, sacrificed cattle and sheep, and he gave some to Balaam the sorcerer and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balaam took, uh, Balak took Balaam up to Baal, uh, Bamoth Baal. And <laughs> These are too many names, aren't they? Hang on with me. They're going to go to a mountain. Let me say it this way. They're going to go to a mountain region. In fact, what they're going to do is he's going to take him to three different regions. I think this is cool too. He's going to take him to a mountain region. He's going to take him to a valley. He's going to take him to a field. All right? So from from this area, he could just see a little bit. He could only see the outskirts of the camp. Why? Because there's three million of them. And this is why the king is going to take the sorcerer to three different places because he can't see all three million at one time. All right, next verse, please. All right. So here we go. Balaam says to Balak, stay here beside your offering while I go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet with me and whatever he reveals to me, I'll tell you. And look at the next couple of words there that he went off to a barren height. And what he does here is it's a sermon all in itself. I don't have time for it this morning, but all in itself, here's the message. If you want to meet with God, you have to unplug. If you want to know what God wants you to do in your life, you got to turn the TV off, you got to get out of Facebook, you got to turn the radio off, and you have to listen. It's a sermon all in itself right there. Okay, next verse. God met with him. And Balaam said, I have prepared seven altars, and on each altar I have offered a bull and a ram. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, go back to Balak the king, this this is the king of Moab, the Moabite king, and give him this word. Now here's the word, verse 6. So he went back to him, and he found him standing beside his offering with all the Moabite officials. And then Balaam the sorcerer spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Denounce Israel. But how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks, so he's up on a mountain, three different locations. This is the first one. From the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view all part of these three million people. I see a people who live apart and who do not not consider themselves one of the nations. 
Who can count the dust of Jacob? Or number even a fourth of Israel. There's so many Israelites, he can't number them all. Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be just like theirs. Verse 11. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? It's like, dude, I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. Balak said to Balaam, look at verse 12. Go ahead to verse 12. He answered him, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Okay, that's the first location. Here's the second location. The second location is a field. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 and 20. Here's what again Balaam says. He inquires of the Lord. He asks the Lord, can I curse these people? I couldn't curse them the first time, but can I curse them the second time? God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot change it. And Balaam's going, are you kidding me? Yeah, this story can't get much worse. Oh, yes, it can. Now we go into a valley. Look at the next section of Scripture. Here's a valley. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as at the other times, but he turned his face toward the wilderness. And when Balaam looked out and he saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, now you've got to picture this, this large valley, and here's all these tents and these Israelites, he can't see all the ones in the rocky peaks. He can't see all the ones in the, va- in, 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 in the valley. But now he's in this huge field where he sees tent after tent after tent after tent of people. The Spirit of God came on him. And he spoke this message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. The prophecy of the one whose eyes cl- see clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God. Who sees a vision from the Almighty who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob. He's going to pronounce another blessing. Your dwelling place, Israel, like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, and their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and they break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. This principle is shared a thousand times in Scripture. It's in every book of the Bible. It's in all 66 books. This principle I'm about to share with you is in every section of Scripture. And God repeats this over and over and over and over again. It is the most repeated message in the entire Bible. It's in every 66 books. It's, a, it's, it's repeated a hundred different ways, a thousand different times. And here's the principle. Here it is. Number one, you cannot curse what God has blessed. You, you can't do it. You, you can't curse the institution of marriage. You, you can't curse parental authority. You can't curse the authority that God has set up. You you, you can't do it. But also the second part of this is you cannot bless 
what God has cursed. It is absolute. People try it every day. People work so hard. I know what God says. I know what God probably is doing, but maybe I can be the exception. This is a universal principle. Now look at both of these together. There is no way that you can curse what God has blessed. And there's no way that you, that you cannot bless what, what God has cursed. So in other words, both of those are things that God has set up. Now, if that's true, if that's true, and I think it is, and I think God says this about a thousand times through the pages of Scripture, wouldn't it make sense to figure out how God thinks? I mean, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to spend your time figuring out, okay, if I can't curse what God has blessed, and if I can't bless what God condemns, wouldn't it make sense that I spend my time figuring out how God thinks? But you see, most of us never do that because we're conditioned from the moment we're born to think about ourselves. I wake up thinking about me, and you wake up thinking about you. All day long, you think about you. I go home, and I'm telling Danita about my day, and I met somebody at Target, maybe get at the toothpaste aisle or whatever, you know, and somebody I've never met in my life, and I go home, and I tell them five or six facts about that individual, and she'll say, now, how long were you in the toothpaste aisle? How, how long did you talk to this person? Five or six minutes. And you got all that in five or six minutes? I said, absolutely. Because when you talk with people, they never ask questions back. They love to talk about themselves. People talk about themselves. They don't ask you questions about you. They talk about themselves. All day long, you think about you. What if? What if? You just start to ask yourself the question, well, I wonder how God thinks. Now, why would we do that? I don't have time this morning. I wish I had time, but there's 12 different ways that your brain plays tricks on you. I wish I had time to do that. But Google it. Look, Look it up. But every day, your brain plays tapes and plays things and memories, and it gets you to do things that you know you shouldn't do. And your brain gets you not to do things that you know that you should do just because of the tapes that are played over and over and over again in your brain. So, so why should I think about God and God's thoughts? Because if I can dial in to what God thinks, then I stay away from what he condemns. And my life's better. My life's better off. And if I can dial in to what he blesses, wow. My life is going to get better and better and better. Einstein said it this way. I think this is kind of a cool quote from Einstein. Einstein said, I want to know God's thoughts. He said, the rest are just details. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And, and so I, I'm not sure that we can, I'm pretty sure that we can't understand everything about God. And that's when I shared last week about Charles Templeton and how Charles Templeton was a better known name than Billy Graham. Back in the mid-1940s, Charles Templeton had a greater following than, than Billy Graham did. But Charles Templeton saw a magazine in the front caption and it read, all she needed was water. And it showed an African woman holding her dead baby. 
And the caption said, all she needs is rain. And Charles Templeton said, you know what? If there is a God, all he's got to do is send rain. Why wouldn't he send rain? And that caused Charles Templeton to snap because he couldn't put all the pieces together. If you know the backstory to Charles Darwin, the backstory to Charles Darwin puts everything in perspective. Charles Darwin and his wife, Emma, strong, committed Christians. Emma was from a long line of godly Christian people. And Charles Darwin and Emma, they, had, they lost a couple of babies. But it was the 10-year-old daughter, Anna. When Anna died, Charles Darwin could not wrap his mind around that. And he had to come up was some kind of a thought or a process that would somehow make sense out of this. And so it was like 20 years later then when he published The Origin of Species, Natural Selection, and he came up with the theory of evolution because he just couldn't put it all together. So there's a part of God that I don't think we'll ever really understand. And, and, and every time that, you know, there's something that... There, between what is and, and what we expect, there, there's like this gap, right? We have all these expectations out of life. You, you have expectations. I have expectations. If you and I planted a grapefruit tree in three to five years, we would expect what? We expect grapefruits. We go to the eye doctor and we get an eye exam. We, we expect to be able to have glasses and contacts where we can actually see. If you go to your mechanic and your mechanic, you know, checks out your car and he says everything's good, you don't expect your car to fall apart the next 500 miles, right? Dr. Lerner was here a couple of weeks ago, did, our, did a health conference for us. And I, mean, I remember on the phone with Dr. Lerner. I just wanted to make sure, you know, I didn't want to guess. I wanted to make sure. I had expectations that he would share Scripture, and I wanted to make sure that he was going to do this from a, from a biblical perspective. So that morning during the conference, I, I see this guy that I'm going, now where have I seen him before? Where, where have I met him before? It wasn't at Starbucks. It wasn't the Y. Where have I seen him before? So he was here Sunday morning, and then that, that afternoon he came back to the conference. And so about 2.15, we took a break during the afternoon conference, and it, it, it hit me. I knew who he was, and I walked up to him, and I said, I said, you've been in my house. You've been in my kitchen. At this point, the guy's eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because he doesn't recognize me at all. And, and I said, um, you're a service technician, and you came in, and you started working on our dishwasher. And by now, the guy hasn't breathed since I've started this conversation. And all he could say was, did I fix it? <laughs> I should have said, oh, man, the day after you left, it caught fire, burned the kitchen down. I, I wasn't quick enough, you know, to, to think. But, but you have a serviceman come out, you expect, you know, things to work, right? That, that's how we are. So, so we, we can't figure everything of God out. And Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 tells us that. Deuteronomy 29 says this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. I don't know why that there's a divorce. I don't know why the child died. I don't know why the friendship imploded. I don't know why there was financial ruin. I, I, I don't. There are so many dots I cannot connect. I don't understand the secret things. Those belong to the Lord. However, however, but the things revealed to us, 
See, he has revealed to us what he will bless. And he has revealed to us what he will never bless. And he has revealed to us what he will condemn. And he has revealed to us the things that no matter how hard you try and how hard you swim or how hard, you're not. He's, he's revealed this to us. So the secret things belong to us. So we're back to our theme again. You can't curse what God has blessed. And you cannot bless what, what God has cursed. And when you begin to look at God and you see some of the things that, that God said no to. I mean, no matter how hard you may want to try, you're never going to be able to bless idolatry. You're never going to be able to do it. You're never going to be able to bless multiple paths to get to God. You're never going to do that because God put all his eggs in one basket and his name was Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No, no matter how hard, you know, if you look at what honked God off, that's a good Indiana term. If you looked at what honked God off in the Old Testament, I mean, there's two things that really got God. No, number one was cannibalism, and number two was offering your babies to the fire god Molech. Those were two things that no matter how hard anybody would ever try, they, they were never going to bless that. And so God... God, God's never going to bless sexual immorality. He's never going to bless it. He's never going to bless sexual immorality because sexual immorality is outside of what he wants to bless. He wants to bless sex in marriage. And by the way, just in case anybody's confused, God created sex. Just in case anybody's confused. And he's all for it. The guys are going, preach it, let him have it. <laughs> Keep, amen, brother, roll. And and this is God's idea. This is God's idea. He came up with this. But he'll never bless it outside, but he'll bless it like crazy inside of marriage. This is why when you look at Scripture, wouldn't it make sense to figure out what our Heavenly Father is willing to bless and what he isn't willing to bless? So this is why I want you to think about what God thinks about. This is why I want you to spend time this week with your life. What is it? What is it that you promise that you're going to bless? So I'm going to give you some examples right now. If you want to write these on your uh, uh, bulletin, great. Not, no, no worries. But I want to give you some examples that are really clear from Scripture on what he won't bless and on what he will bless. Here's the first one. God, God won't bless pride. He never has. He never will. He won't bless pride and arrogance. And the reason he won't bless pride and arrogance is because pride says, I did it. Pride says, I deserve it. Pride says, I got here on my own. God doesn't bless pride, but God really does bless humility. And humility is not saying I'm not very good at something. Oh, shucks, you know, you know no, don't thank me. That's not, what, that's not what humility is. Humility is saying, God gave me these amazing skills and talents, and I'm going to use them for him. God made me this way, and I have this ability, and I'm going to do this for the king of kings. That humility is God is on your throne. You've displaced yourself, and you've replaced yourself with him. That's what humility is. God will never bless self-centeredness, never has, never will, but he always blesses sacrifice. That's why he says to take up your cross and follow me. 
Look at the third one. God won't bless deception. He never does, never has, never will. But he always blesses truth, 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 truth. God loves truth. He won't bless greed. I'm really trying to work on the generosity thing. I, I had a friend of mine in our church who's really helped me with the whole generosity thing, saying this really separates mature Christians from immature Christians. This, this thing about generosity, about money, really helps to, to recognize whether you've really matured or whether you're just on the process. And so I've really tried to think about generosity. I've really tried to become more. That's one of my goals that this year, to be generous. God won't bless hoarding. He never has, never will. But he always blesses giving. It's kind of funny because he even talks about curses and blessings about tithing in Malachi chapter 3. And so God always blesses tithers. He does not bless people who, who do not tithe. And so when people have money problems and they come to me, first question I ask them, I don't ask them how much money you make. I don't ask them if you're working. I ask them if you're tithing. So don't come to me if you don't want me to ask you that question. The reason I ask that question is, is tithing is never a money issue. Tithing is always a faith issue. Because God says, I can do more with 90%. This is just God's economy. It's how God works. God blesses it. And so this is just how, how God is. So, so God won't bless hoarding, but man, does he bless generosity? Does he bless giving? Look at the next list. He won't bless coveting. See, coveting is, is I want, you know, your car and your pool and I want your, you know, toys. And I want, because coveting says, you know, God, you've not been very good to me. Coveting says, I, I don't have enough. Coveting says, I, I don't have everything that I need. But he always blesses holiness, separation, holiness. He won't bless control. Control is, is you just got to put everything, you, you try to be God. Really, control is you try to be God. I had that one, too, for years, be a control freak. I think I'm a less of a control freak today than I used to be, and I have a whole lot more peace whole lot more peace. He, he doesn't bless accusation. That's what Satan does. Satan's the accuser. So if you're putting other people down, you're, why didn't you do this? How come you relate? How come blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about work. There's some things in work you got to do. I'm talking about a lifestyle of accusation. That's what Satan does. Satan is the accuser. Satan goes around accusing people day and night. That's all he does. But grace is I love you, I accept you, I receive you. How can I help you? How can I foster your future? God always blesses grace. He won't bless sexual immorality. I mean, we could just talk for about six weeks on this. You know, you, people have tried. Most of us have tried. Probably all of us have tried. We've, we've all, maybe we're the exception. He never blesses sexual immorality. Never, ever, ever, ever. But man, does he bless sexual integrity. He always blesses sexual integrity. Always, always, always. He, he never blesses unforgiveness. He is a God who forgives. He always blesses forgiveness. Well, I'm going to give you an assignment in just a second. But first of all, I want to appeal to your heart. Why do you think that Jesus was so crazy about Peter? Peter was clumsy. Peter would say the wrong things at the wrong time. P Peter was like over the top. 
denied Christ three times. When Jesus showed up on the John chapter 21 on the shore, John, and they recognized it was Jesus, he's out in the boat. He doesn't wait, row in, be cool, have some class. He just jumps in the water and swims like a banshee. I, I don't know what banshee means, but it just sounded good at the time. He, he was in a hurry. I, 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 why, why do you think Jesus loved Mary? She's just sitting at his feet. Martha's busy getting everything ready, cooking, getting the rolls out of the oven. Mary's just sitting there, just sitting. Why did Jesus, why did he just, why why was Jesus crazy about Zacchaeus? He's this greedy little tax collector up in a sycamore tree, cheating everybody in the whole town. Jesus was crazy about the greedy tax collector because when the tax collector met Jesus, he goes back to everybody he's ripped off. I ripped you off for 100, here's 400. I ripped you off for 1,000, here's 4,000. Everybody was freaking out. Zacchaeus is going from home to home to home, re- repenting. Why, why, why was Jesus standing when Stephen is being stoned? Only time in Scripture you'll ever find the Son of Man standing. Every other time, he's seated at the right hand of God. Not when Stephen's being stoned. When Stephen stoned, Jesus is standing, waiting for him to come into heaven. Why? Because all those people were crazy in love with Jesus. Peter loved Jesus, didn't know how to express it. Zacchaeus knew he was lonely, and Jesus had met every... Mary, she got it right. Stephen was willing to take the heat and stand up for Christ and teach Jewish history and say, you guys did this. Jesus loved these people because these people they were in love with him I want to encourage you to be a little more in love with him and a little less in love with you I want to encourage you this week that when you have your 15 minutes with God Wherever you are, if it's the truck or the home or your chair at home, wherever your 15 minutes with God is, this week instead of like like the vending machine where you're throwing the quarters in and you're pushing buttons like prayer requests, God help me, bless me, give me, help me, bless me. This week with God, I want to ask you to do something that maybe you've never done before. Lord, this week with you, I want to know what you think. I want to know what you bless. I want to know what you condemn. I want to know what's valuable to you. This week, God, I want to make this about you and a lot less about me. That's your assignment this week. The next seven days, your 15 minutes with God is not about you. It's about him. So I'm asking you to love him a whole lot more try to make this a lot less about you. And you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen, don't you? You're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed in spades because you know that your heavenly Father has your best interests in mind. And so that's why he gave us Jesus because he knew that we couldn't save ourselves. And he knew that we were condemned in our sin and our unrighteousness.
And so he gave us Christ that on that cross, all our sins, past, present, and future, would be nailed. So what do you do? You surrender. You seek him. You give your life to him. And I I, I want to encourage that. Let's stand. Let's ask our prayer partners to come down front. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that is step number one. Step number one is today. I want to become a Christian. Today, I want to cross over from me to him. So that's the first step. And these prayer partners will help you and love you and support you and help you walk you through that. But perhaps today, life's been a whole lot more about you than it has been about him. And you would like somebody to pray for you and to pray with you and to pray over you that life will be a whole lot more about him than it is about you. Maybe there's a different request that you have today that I haven't mentioned. Come down for prayer. But here's your assignment this week. I'm going to ask you next Sunday. Okay? Here's your assignment. Your 15 minutes with God. This week is going to be a lot less about you and a lot more about Him. Why not, God? You're great. Our own brains trick ourselves. We can't even think clearly. But you've said this about a thousand times, about a hundred different ways. This week, we want to make this about you and honor you with everything that we say and do. So, Father, may we come to you during those times of meditation and prayer and just honor you and praise you and lift you up. In the great name of Jesus, we pray.